Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Farhan Maradi, a Toronto writer and director whose first feature, Toronto, stars Sami Azero and Mosegami as two young students from different segments of the Persian diaspora who fall unexpectedly in love in Toronto. It made its world premiere at the Canadian Film Fest earlier this year, and it opens in Toronto this Friday, November 25th. Farhan picked The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's 2008 sequel to Batman Begins, that pits Christian Bale's billionaire superhero against the machinations of his greatest arch foe, the Joker, played by Heath Ledger in one of his final performances. With Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gary Oldman, and Michael Caine playing key supporting roles and spectacular IMAX action sequences, The Dark Knight more or less conquered the world, pulling in more than a billion dollars at the box office, legitimizing superhero narratives as quote-unquote grown-up cinema, and winning Oscars for Best Sound Editing and Best Supporting Actor for the late Ledger, whose Joker has yet to be equaled, let alone eclipsed. I'm not the only one saying that, of course. This is someone else's movie. I grew up in small towns in Ontario. We moved around a lot. Uh, we lived in Coburg, we lived in Leamington. And when I moved to London, it was the first time I had access to a comic book store. And it was right around the time the Batman Begins had come out. And so having just watched Batman Begins, I was like, oh, great, I'm going to get into Batman comics. I read a couple issues here and there. And my sister got me an issue of Hush. And that pretty much hooked me into uh into reading more and more Batman comics specifically. And uh, I always, I grew up watching, you know, the, the, the cartoon with Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill and, uh, and obviously the Tim Burton and the Schumacher films. But at a certain point, I, I realized that the Schumacher films weren't what I thought they were. And I loved them as a kid, but as I got a little older, I realized that it, it uh, wasn't as good as it, as I remembered it being. So Batman Begins came out at a perfect time because I was ready for something a little more serious. And uh, that that Joker calling card at the end that tees up the sequel, I thought was just such an amazing, an, an amazing tease. And for years, I was just waiting, okay, what's the next one going to be? And so right around that same time, I started doing some graphic design just for fun. And I started with MS Paint. And then I... I learned how to use windows movie makers so that I could superimpose images using like crossfades and use that to make the graphics in the posters. And my abilities as a graphic designer kind of evolved over the next couple of years while I was waiting for the dark Knight to come out. And then I started, I was editing fan trailers of, of the Batman movies and of the star Wars films and eventually I, uh, I got to see the film and it was right around this time where I was a teenager and, and in, you know, just starting to look at different kinds of movies where, yeah, I don't know where um, there were, there were interesting themes in films. Like you'd be paying attention to cinematography, to the music, to the acting choices, the shot selection and, and of course, they filmed a lot of the movie on IMAX. So I was starting to pay attention to cameras. So all these things that I never really paid attention to now as a teenager, I was paying attention to. And it really fueled my interest in film. And so I would say that the, the nexus event of me getting into film, you could argue, was probably The Dark Knight. Wow. I, I'm a little older. And so I've 
have some distance on the hype, I guess. Um, but I was in the center of it. Uh, I I was on the junket for the Dark Knight. It was the first year I was at Now, and they Warner suddenly invited us to go out and see it, and they screened it for us in in Los Angeles. In the like the, the Batmobile was parked outside the hotel at the I think it was the Beverly Wilshire uh, for the duration of the junket, and it was just very silly. But then you see the movie, and suddenly it's like, oh, I get it. You you think you have a a serious film here, like this is a real movie. But but to mm-hmm. roll back to Batman Begins. It was also one out of the blue kind of thing. I, I I loved it. I think it was the Batman movie I had always wanted somehow, like sort of a, an earthbound Batman. It's the mm-hmm. only one of the trilogy that feels like it takes place in something approximating the real world. Because, mm-hmm. you know, once you introduce the Joker and you have to scale, the, the, the problem I have with the Batman movies is that they sort of symbolize everything about Christopher Nolan as well. And it's not their fault. It's not the movie's fault. Mm-hmm. But what you see is this really simple premise, beautifully executed, and then the need to top it over and over again. The Dark Knight's great. Don't don't get me wrong at all. I, I think it's a terrific film. Uh, Dark Knight Rises, that's where you start to see the seams show where he's just, his dedication to making a real world Batman movie mm-hmm. runs headlong into Bane and the idea mm-hmm. of spectacle that he pioneered in The Dark Knight, where, mm-hmm. you know, IMAX and bigger and better and more elaborate. In the Dark Knight, you're just riding the edge of credulity where, you know, the Joker is just a guy with scars who puts on makeup, which is a, a brilliant touch, completely demystifies it. And then he mystifies it in, in plenty of other directions with what Ledger is doing and with the mythology that he sort of steals where his origin is constantly changing and he, he is he, he has no beginning, he has no end. He is just mm-hmm. a chaos avatar, which Ledger still, I love this about that performance where he gives you the possibility of thinking that it is like part of his plan is to insist that there is no plan because, mm-hmm. you know, somebody with the attention deficit disorder that he claims he has wouldn't be able to pull off anything that he does. Mm-hmm. He's clearly worked all this stuff out in advance, um, which I love about that because, you know, as, as hard as Bruce Wayne tries to make Batman a terrifying figure, he won't kill you. Mm-hmm. Like he has limits. And mm-hmm. the Joker's whole thing is a man with limits insisting he doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's a, well, that's the beauty of it. Th- this whole thing, I-, I love that you mentioned that Joker clearly has been planning this for a long time. Do you know much about the viral marketing that was going on around the film? Oh, yeah. It came out? Yeah, I so remember I was, in the, I was in the thick of that as, as a teenager. So I would I would log on at specific times and you would have to put in like different codes to unlock some secret website. And then you go to the secret website at a specific time on a specific date and like more and more people hit it and more pixels would reveal an image that would point you to another place. And this went on for a whole year. They launched it the year before the movie came out and it all led up to the actual film. And so the way that it worked is it was as if the Joker was real and giving you like tidbits of information Mm. to help him along on his plan. So one of the, the plans you're, you're figuring out, bus routes and bus schedules and then when you watch the movie you understand that the reason for that is that 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 the opening uh scene in the film the prologue when he gets away with in the bus it's perfectly timed so that when he pulls out he's in line with all the buses right so if you were part of the viral marketing campaign for a year you understand oh there was like that's my hard work that paid off i'm the guy (laughs) who helped joker figure all this stuff out and and every step of the way, every single thing that he does that you're like, this would require meticulous planning, like even the bombs and 
and yeah, just figuring out different routes and timing within the film, you help him do it all along the way, which I thought was brilliant marketing. And I, huh. I hadn't seen anything like it before the movie came out. And I don't know if there have been many that have done it to the same extent. And you can still find it now. I think if you go to, I think it's like whysoserious.com or something, you can find the uh, the whole catalog and archive of everything that they did for a year. That's amazing. I had no idea. I missed all of that completely. I was the I was the prime demo for it. <laughs> and it kind of in a way it's sort of what they're doing in the new Batman with the Riddler and his online pals, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's they it's almost like they figured out that that could work independently of or not for independently sure. in universe. And funny enough, they did the same thing for for our world like in outside of universe as more viral marketing for the new Batman as well. So similarly, where you have um, these these online individuals who are watching his Twitch streams and all this stuff and, and logging into these back alley websites like you were mentioning, you, uh, you could have done that in the real world as well to unlock more things. And I think that that might be how they released one of the deleted scenes of the film, if I'm not mistaken. That was ring a bell, actually. It's, it's so strange, too, that the... The internet, which, I mean, this is pre-Twitter, pre-most social media, uh, other than Facebook, right? At the time, in 2008, they're just... You could use Twitter, but it was it was before Twitter had its kind of re-emergence. Like, Twitter was hot, I would say, in, like, early 2000s, then it had a lull, and then probably in the 2010s, it, it had a re- resurgence. No, probably when smartphones came on, right? That made it easier, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to just SMSing them. I hadn't even yeah. thought of that. But the... The, the way that the, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to frame this, because, well, obviously the Dark Knight also arrived shrouded with Heath Ledger's death, or not mm-hmm. shrouded with, but shrouded in Heath Ledger's death, where mm-hmm. um, I remember the news of his death broke, I think it was the day I signed my contract at now, like when I finally joined that paper. So it was January, late January, 2008. Oh, wow. Wow. And so that's what, six months, almost seven before the film opens. And you've got this, this cloud over it where they'd already released the prologue, right? Cause that played in IMAX theaters yeah, in, in front of I Am Legend, Legend right? Yeah. yeah, at Christmas. And that's all Ledger. So mm-hmm. there was already confidence that this was gonna be a performance to remember, but then he dies and, and you spend months in hearing Warner insist that it was finished and it was com- mm. the performance was complete and they weren't doing any reshoots, which was all true. Mm-hmm. But the rumor mill was just churning about what they were going to do. And, and to that point, like uh, of the rumor mill, I remember people saying, oh, he was so invested in the role that that's what killed him. And oh, all this stuff, which uh, his family has come out and vehemently denied as the Nolan and all the co-stars. Oh, yeah, um, I was there for that. That was, there yeah. was this one guy and I... I just, it was probably the worst experience. Uh, okay, so I get to do the Dark Knight Junket and the movie's great. And I'm talking to all of these artists who I legitimately respect. Nolan and Bale and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal was there, Aaron Eckhart, Gary Oldman. That was that was just a joy. And it's, it's, um, it's uh, roundtables. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in a room. They've packed in as many journalists per room as they can. I think there were 15 or 16. Like, they had to bring in more chairs. The place was filled with people. Wow. And they would usher in each talent, and we would sit with them for 20 minutes or however. And there was one guy, one of the other journalists, who just absolutely refused to stop asking questions about if 
and I, this is a direct quote, if mm-hmm. Heath Ledger was possessed by the Joker and that's oh, what killed him and asking it like a child would. So mm-hmm. I don't know how he got on. Everybody was embarrassed, the, the whole room. And Bale just shot it down very politely, which said, mm-hmm. no, that's silly. Nolan had a whole long answer about the, mm-hmm. uh, Ledger's commitment and how this was an awful, terrible tragedy that had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the film. And Gary Oldman spoke to him like a preschooler and said very gently that, you know, he wasn't being the Joker all the time, that you have mm-hmm. to understand this was a performance that we would go outside and smoke cigarettes and share pictures of our kids. And he got quiet and then that interview ended. And then they brought in, I think it was Goyer and, and uh, Jonathan Nolan. Mm-hmm. And he went right back to it, asking the same question. Oh like, he, like he refused to learn anything. And we were just, it was, I get it. That's the story he wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a comic book character. The, yeah. the idea that this that there is some sort of inherent malevolence in a, in a comic book character that's been around and not killed everyone else who's mm-hmm. played it. It's just, it's such a, such a strange childish fixation. And I, I kind of see that now in the post Nolan Zack Snyder era mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people are insisting that the thing they believe has to be true. And mm-hmm. unfortunately with Zack Snyder's Justice League, they ended up making it true. So now we're stuck yeah. with that reality. And and uh, I like that you brought up the the Zack Snyder universe of the DC films, um, because my understanding is that, and again, these are rumors, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is true or not. But from friends of mine who worked on the film, um, that Leto, whether or not he meant it like seriously or not, uh, played into it a little bit of this oh, idea of. Yeah, of being the Joker when the camera isn't rolling or whatever, or like, or taking on mannerisms. Whereas um, there's stories of of people who worked with him even for like a day or two. I think the guy who he captures and does the like torture video with mm-hmm. um, in the Dark Knight, as soon as they would call cut, he would switch back to Heath Ledger, and he'd be like to the guy, he'd be like, "That was a really good take. Like, do you want to like do it again? Do you want to run light?" And like, he was super friendly, super nice. And it would switch right back to wholesome Heath Ledger. Yeah, because why um, wouldn't he? He's an actor. It's a part. It's just so frustrating to to see that level of, you know, unnecessary commitment yeah. in a performance. And yeah, I've, I heard the stories about Leto on on the set of the Suicide Squad movie here in Toronto, and yeah. I just it's it's not something I respect. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and and some of those stories I think became a little more exaggerated over time. Like there are certain stories that I've heard that I've talked to people who have been on the film and who worked with them and were like, no, that's that's like conflated. That's not real. But then there's other things where people are like, yeah. But I think that that's kind of what happens when when some actors like to perform a little more method. But my mm-hmm. understanding is that Heath Ledger didn't really do that. Not at all. Um, no. And I and I think that it's that paired with um, the viral marketing and it was like one of the first IMAX films to or one of the first big uh, blockbusters to be filmed uh, in IMAX cameras for a good chunk of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a very grounded take on, on superheroes, uh, which I would argue Batman Begins was probably the first one to attempt. Um, It was like this perfect storm to bring in such a crazy amount of hype for the film. So that by the time that the movie came out, it, uh, I think it was, it, the only film that it didn't pass was Titanic, right? At the time. Uh, maybe. 
Yeah, Avatar wouldn't happen for another year, so it's possible. Yeah. It was in the top four, at least, yeah. for, the, for the longest time. And it was colossal, like $1.2 I think. It was the first, even, uh, this was the year that Iron Man came out, and it still left it in the dust. Yeah. And it's funny, because then when you watch Iron Man 2, you can tell that Iron Man 2 was influenced by The Dark Knight. Like, there's beat-for-beat beat moments in, in Iron Man 2 that are lifted from The Dark Knight, including this... Um, the interrogation scene and even kind of the way that he presents himself like mickey rourke's character it's very reminiscent of heath ledger's joker and i think that it's it's very clear when you look at superhero movies that came out after the dark knight and the ones that came out before that this movie had a groundbreaking uh influence on the on the genre Oh, I agree. And also playing up the fact that only Christopher Nolan could really pull it off. Oh, absolutely. Like the thing he does, the momentum, the, the narrative complexity, the plate spinning that he manages to do. Yeah. It's probably true. The criticism that's thrown against him the most is that his films don't really make sense if you stop and think about <laughs> them. But the experience of a comic book happening in the real world mm -hmm. would feel like this, I think. Like he captures mm -hmm. something about the energy and the just the breathlessness mm -hmm. with which he tells his stories and always, always, always his movies don't end. They just stop, but mm -hmm. they stop at a point that leaves you moving forward still yeah. like physically careening forward. It's, I don't know how, I mean, I know how he does it. It's editing mm -hmm. and music and all that, but he has a gift for this, like all mm -hmm. the way back to Memento. He's always been able to leave you at the perfect moment. Mm -hmm. And with the Batman movies, that just feels like a comic book closing, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not mm -hmm. the last issue it's just Cause it, yeah because it, it, it ends that story and it tees up the next one really nicely mm -hmm. and he does it with all three of them and that's something that that i do try to do with my films is okay how do i end this story and tee up a sequel that's never going to happen um right. so that's that's something that he does in all of his films and i and i'm a big fan of all his films i've seen all his movies including following and uh and that's something that uh that I try to try my best to aspire to be like, you know, um, but with him applying that same approach to Batman, I found very fascinating, especially as, as a teenager, because the first two movies came out when I was a teenager, the third one came out uh, as I think the third one might've actually come out when I was, in, when I was 19. So still a teenager, <laughs> all three of them. Um, and it was just as I was trying to, like understand, okay, I do want to be a filmmaker. I'm going to go to film school and all this stuff. So seminal time of my life. And a lot of my friendships came out of our mutual love for Batman. Cause it, there ended up being this weird resurgence in Batman fans where oh, everyone yeah. was, it, it became a respectable thing to, to be a fan of Batman. You know what I mean? Cause now uh, the gold standard wasn't like Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher. It was, Christopher Nolan, right? Whereas at the time, at least, Marvel movies were still like, because Iron Man had just come out, right? But before that, it was like Fantastic Four 2, I think, came out in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, so, yeah, and Spider Man 3 and X Men The Last Stand. So all these other comic book movies weren't, were not doing well. This one comes out, does extremely well. It's, it's very serious. Um, and it, and it pulls from classical literature, uh, or sorry, it pulls from classical literary mechanisms. 
So uh, Harvey Dent, for example, is a case study for Aristotle's uh, tragic hero. Like beat for beat, he hits all the steps that that would um, that you would need to have a tragic hero. Uh, like thinking back to Antigone, like when you think of Creon, uh, Harvey Dent is basically Creon because he he go he has the he has the same hubris. He goes through the Hamartic act, the anagnoresis, the Peripatia, uh, the Epiphany, the Nemesis. Like he hits every single. Uh, step along the way. And I remember finding this out again as a teenager and being like, wow, oh my God, like I'm seeing storytelling in a whole new way. And it, and I think that if a superhero movie can come out and have that kind of an effect on teenagers who grew up in small town Canada, I think that you're doing something right. Yeah. I mean, well, it's George Lucas and Joseph Campbell, right? Like you find the texts and you find a way to work them into your story because that way you're not only making it appeal to the broadest possible audience because you're using tropes and archetypes and and simple points, Mm -hmm. you're using time-honored tropes and archetypes. Like it's not just that these things are recognizable, it's Mm -hmm. that they're recognizable because they work Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to stereotypes or things that are, you know, like less healthy and helpful to your narrative. They're just something that's easy. This is building the spine of a story and Harvey Dent isn't even the, the hero, right? Like that's yeah. the other thing too. He's the one, he is absolutely the character who goes through the most um, and, and clearly comes out the worst for it. Mm-hmm. But by that interpretation, which I've always believed in, like the Joker wins, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Joker is out to destroy Harvey Dent and mm-hmm. he manages that. Mm-hmm. Very well, I would actually, I would argue that Harvey Dent is the protagonist of the Dark Knight. Because, like what you just said, he's the character who obviously goes through the most agony. Mm-hmm. And if you go by the classical Greek definition of what is a protagonist, it's the character who suffers the most agony. So if you're to, if if you analyze the Dark Knight in a classical Greek storytelling mind, then then Harvey Dent has to be the protagonist of the Dark Knight. Which to me, uh, you could make the argument that. Harvey Dent is actually the Dark Knight, and it's not Batman. Batman assumes the mantle of the Dark Knight because he ends up being the fall guy. But when you think about it, Harvey Dent is technically the Dark Knight, which I know Batman fans are going to crucify me for this. <laughs> but I think that that is, is the, the thesis of the film, or that's the, the thesis that's proposed at the end of the film, is that he pretends to be the Dark Knight at the end so that they can maintain the image that Harvey Dent is the white knight. Was the pure, yeah. I mean, it's also the end of Memento, isn't it, right? Like, for your sake, Teddy, yes, I will. Mm-hmm. It's it's someone choosing, although in Memento, it's choosing to remain mentally unstable, like deliberately or whatever it is he's convinced himself mm-hmm. he has. And here it's Bruce Wayne willingly assuming the loathing and fear of Gotham. And also mm-hmm. it's one of those things where Again, it doesn't make sense. Like by the end of by the end of the Dark Knight, there are just too many people who've seen Batman be the good guy over mm-hmm. so much time that it just wouldn't land with Gotham. And the only way they make sense of it is in the next film, where it's like, oh, and then he went away. He mm. he went into hiding. And he wasn't Batman for eight years, and it's driving him insane. Yeah, it works in the moment, right? Do you remember how long he was Batman for? I think it's something like six months, isn't it? It's yeah, a really yeah, short run. I think it's like, yeah, six months or eight months or something. It's very brief, but it, it leaves a lasting impact on Gotham, yeah. which I find super cool. The thing that they never deal with, which I kind of love, is the 
the immediate arrival of the imposters, that there mm-hmm. are other Batmans running around bothering yeah. people and not helping. And presumably they didn't go away. So the one thing that's missing, I think, from The Dark Knight Rises is just a series of newspaper covers of Batman dead, Batman dead, Batman dead. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's a joke that I don't think um, Nolan is willing to play. Well, I, I'd love to ask you what, because the original plan for Dark Knight Rises, it was supposed to include the Joker. Yeah, And there have been, like, people have theorized what role he was supposed to play, but I don't think there's ever been a hard, fast confirmation on it. I'd love to know what your take is on, okay, let's say you're, you're writing the Dark Knight Rises, you get a draft of it, you, you receive the draft that was given to you, Heath Ledger's alive, and you go, oh, wait, we should put Heath Ledger in this. Where do you put him in the story? Well, I know that Nolan said, uh, swore up and down on the junket that he wasn't planning a sequel. But I think that was also his stock answer. He always says that, that like when the movie's over, I can never imagine returning to this. I think he said it for Batman Begins too. And so he said that the original plan was to have the Joker around. He wouldn't necessarily be a player in every movie. He would be like, if they were creating, how did he put it? If we're creating a character that has the same legacy as Batman, or if no, if we're inviting a character with the same standing as Batman into this world, Mm -hmm. then he can never leave. Ledger says it at the end. Like, we're going to do this forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the concept. But I also think that it would have simply been him, like, he'd be the Hannibal Lecter. He'd be the one who's in, who's Hannibal Lecter specifically in Manhunter, where he's incarcerated and he's cranky, mm-hmm. but he's still making trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think the new film, the um, the Batman leans in that direction in mm-hmm. the final scene, which I hated. Mm-hmm. Uh, because You hated it, the final scene or you hated the film? I hated the final scene in the Batman is completely mm-hmm. unnecessary. I like the movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the idea as I do in Batman begins of a Batman who doesn't really know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, like everybody was saying it's, it's the complaint in the Batman is that Pattinson's Batman is a terrible detective. And it's like, well, he's pretty good, but he misses things. That's the point. He's just mm-hmm. starting the same way that Bale's voice in Batman begins. Mm-hmm. People were complaining about it. I was like, no, it's great. It's, it's the Batman. It doesn't know how to be Batman yet. Yeah, yeah. He's figuring it out. And I think it is a mistake that they stuck with it. Uh, with the, with the, the horrible gravel of it all, because it's painful eventually. Yeah. And it, I, I, it just, again, if you're grounding a film in reality, the, the way they insisted Batman Begins was, mm-hmm. then a voice modulator makes more sense, or something mm-hmm. like something mm-hmm. technical, as opposed yeah. to an, an effect, like, that like the, the actor Ben puts Affleck, on. like the Ben Affleck Batman. He has the, the Affleck modulator. Batman, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, I, I will come out on a on a ledge here, and I will say that I thought Ben Affleck made a pretty good Bruce Wayne. Like that, nothing. I, I agree. You know who who my favorite Bruce Wayne is, though, and I don't know if you're going to guess it. Clooney. Yeah, Clooney's Clooney. my favorite. He looks Clooney. good in the tux. He's, He's having fun. Yeah, he he plays that Playboy Playboy personality very well. Yeah, and it's it's the comic book to a T. Yeah, and it's the Batman slash Bruce Wayne dichotomy that I think I want the most, which is a Batman who who enjoys pretending to be Bruce Wayne. And mm-hmm. Bale hints at it here and there, especially in the Lamborghini scene in The Dark Knight. Yeah, where he just gets out of the car and is is a vacant idiot and is clearly having the best time. And it's, I get it in that conception, Bruce Wayne's not allowed to enjoy himself. So you can't really have him have too much fun, but Clooney, absolutely. Especially with the the weird continuity of those four films where Mm -hmm. this is the same guy. Mm -hmm. 
has eventually reached a point where he's comfortable being Batman, yeah. but also enjoying sleeping around and drinking too, uh, fake drinking too much and just going to parties mm-hmm. and throwing money around. Clooney I, is a great Bruce Wayne. Yeah, I think having like a bumbling idiot Bruce Wayne like was a mistake. And it's one of my few complaints and criticisms with the uh, the Nolan oh, the, Batman. In films. the Dark Knight. Okay. Yeah. I don't like the bumbling idiot Bruce Wayne. Because... because. I understand it in in Batman Begins and I can forgive it because he's still trying to figure out who he is. And by the end of the movie, Alfred even even makes it clear to him. He's like, you need to uphold your family's legacy. Right. Like as the Waynes, they contributed a lot to Gotham and you have a legacy to uphold. And so my thinking was in The Dark Knight, he's going to be a little more upstanding. Do you know what I mean? And he's going to be more assertive in his position on things in public, but he goes back to the way that he was. He goes back to being like a bumbling idiot. He's a little less so because he still throws that party for, for Harvey Dent mm-hmm. and he, and he delivers a really great speech, but I think uh, he still kind of falls into that trap a little bit, which I didn't like. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about the Blu-ray releases of Moon Age Daydream, 3,000 Years of Longing, and Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, as well as the 4K editions of Casablanca and Elf, and Arrow's Count Yorga collection and Gothic Fantastico box sets. Sign up for the 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. And the literacy of Nolan and Goyer and other Nolan script too, with comic book references and, and pulling things from literally decades of Batman is interesting because they all claimed that they'd never really investigated them. Every single person's like, oh, I like the show. I, you know, like, I remember Adam West and I didn't want to do that. Or Nolan said he'd never read Batman until he was offered Batman Begins by Warner. And then he just got obsessed with all of it. And I think Jonathan Nolan was very vague about whether or not he was a fan. But it's one of those things where it was still not cool to acknowledge the character mm-hmm. had an impact on you. I mean, as opposed to people like um, like James Gunn, who says he's always loved misfits and, and mm-hmm. has brought that mm-hmm. thing to like his entire filmography leads him to the stuff he's doing now. Mm-hmm. And superheroes just sort of fit into it. And he made a movie like he wrote the specials in 2000 or made the specials in 2000, which nobody remembers, but was a very funny, very silly kind of preface to Guardians about useless superheroes in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Nolan and his people still had to be a little standoffish. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, again, this this goes to that testament of the impact that The Dark Knight had. Because now, oh, when yeah. people are talking about doing DC films, they're always looking back on it and being like, oh, if we can just do what The Dark Knight did, or like... Or oh, if we can if we can be even close to the Dark Knight, that we know we did a good job. There's a similar quote for um, the Batman that was along those lines that they're hoping to be um, in the same vein as as Nolan's Dark Knight, but like more gritty. And um and and so when I watched the movie, I was like, okay, this is this is good. It's too long, but it's good. I still like the Dark Knight more. Um, or you look at the Zack Snyder films, and you're like. 
this is visually very nice, but I don't think you understand who Batman is. Even though visually, like visually, uh, Snyder's Batman looks and feels, again, visually, like comic book Batman. But character-wise, I think Nolan's is right on the money, whereas Snyder's is way off mark. Except for his his uh, adaptation of Bruce Wayne. I think I'll give him points for Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Affleck's perfect Bruce Wayne too. I mean, his, mm-hmm. he's got exactly the right vibe of casual entitlement. Like mm-hmm. it's somebody who's never, he's experienced psychological trauma, but he's never really been without support. So he's a healthier Batman. And that's the problem mm-hmm. I think with the Snyder Batman films is that they introduce him. What he's, supposedly been operating under the radar for 20 years and you just yeah yeah i get it he'd be well adjusted and good at what he does but it's also preposterous that no one has noticed especially with superman in the world yeah with superman in the world and he's leaving like a trail of dead bodies behind (laughs) yes maimed bruised branded burned branded it's a bit much but yeah you're right and snyder had already demonstrated he doesn't understand superman and then he comes out with this and it's like oh you don't get either of them and we're here for another two and a half hours great yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'm still mad about those. Oh, you and me both. I'm curious to see how things are going to go moving forward, and if the rumors of them doing like a multiverse thing is going to work out. Because uh, Bale has commented on that, and he said that the only way he would be involved is if Nolan was involved. So right. you never know. I, I like I wouldn't be surprised if he was given enough money to come in as a producer. So that they could get bail on a scene. No one's a credited producer on all of them, isn't he? Or at least the Batman ones. He was a producer I, on Man of Steel. So Man of Steel for sure. Yeah. And I don't think he had very much to do with it. I, I think he did. I think he had veto power on Man of Steel. Oh, yeah. And there were a few things that that uh, Snyder apparently had to convince him to let him do. And I and I, I do like the first half of Man of Steel. It feels a lot like a Terrence Malick. Superman film. Yeah, the Terrence Malick doing doing the Donner film, like doing mm-hmm. Superman 1978. And yeah. right up until the Kryptonians show up, I was on board. Yeah. And then it was just like, oh, and now it's noise. Like it just yeah. suddenly becomes noise. Yeah. I have the exact same feeling on it. Um, and I love um, whenever there's a, a, a review for a new superhero movie, I would say probably nine times out of ten, the trending uh, reviews are could this be the best superhero film since the dark Knight? It's always, everyone always uses it as the gold standard and there's a reason for it. And, and I think that it, it had a impact because it took this beloved character that everybody knew that they grew up watching on Saturday morning cartoons or on, uh, on the sixties of the sixties Adam West show. And, uh, made it serious and made it respectable. And I think it also, there's an argument to be made that the Dark Knight trilogy kicked off this this um, trend of gritty reboots to the point where that became a joke of having gritty reboots. Because I can't think of any before that. Um, I mean, the, the Tim Burton one, but it, that was still campy. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a reboot. It was it was an attempt to just launch it. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of. I mean, well, I meant rebooting from the the '60s one. Like right. it was like a gritty reboot compared to '60s Adam West, right? Yeah, and it is amazing that we thought that was gritty in mm-hmm. 1989 because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. this you know it's this beautiful Art Deco, Gothic collision of concepts and and I mean I love mm-hmm. it. I I love 
the first one and Batman Returns is some kind of cracked masterpiece. Yeah. But it is in no way gritty as we understand, even then mm-hmm. as we understand, like Joker, uh, the the Todd Phillips film desperately wants to be a gritty reboot of the character. Yeah. And it's really just Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy stapled yeah. together with, a, with yeah. uh, the Joker in it. But what Nolan does is... I suppose it's gritty and that it's like morally messy and it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's willing to be violent and tease the possibility of, of real death and harm, but they're so beautiful to look at that. It's just not something I would, I would frame that way. They're just, you know, these, these films are glossy and sculpted and especially once you get into the IMAX stuff in, in the dark night and he just oh, uses funny. large format so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And I know that we, well, I still love Dark Knight Rises. You can love it, but I think, and I, and I think it's because I, I became so invested in the comic books mm-hmm. that when you watch that movie, you're like, oh, this is like an adaptation of the comic book series No Man's Land meets um, Nightfall, right? So that was very cool for me to see on screen because it was like, okay, cool, Gotham's like split into different like areas after Bane takes over. Like Scarecrow's kind of swooped in over here and and uh Catwoman's going through and and burgling and and uh the city's under siege and uh but I still love it. And I and I think that to what you were saying with how it's glossy and the IMAX scenes are beautiful, uh I remember seeing the prologue for that. I forget what it was attached to. Was it uh was it Mission Impossible? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Ghost Protocol. Right. So I remember watching the the opening for that and that first shot where the camera's just like sweeping across the the the, the, the tall grass. That was the first time I ever saw a full format IMAX film. Oh, wow. Because when The Dark Knight came out, I was living in London and they don't have real IMAX. They have the LIMAX theaters, oh, right? The, the digital thing. Yeah, the 16 by 9 aspect ratio IMAX screens. And so watching it in the full IMAX aspect ratio, I was blown away. Like, this is beautiful. All movies should be filmed like this. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think uh, I'm just trying to think of how many movies tried to do what the Nolan's Batman films did. I mean, Amazing Spider-Man tried to do it with their like grounded reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would even argue that Iron Man and Incredible Hulk tried to do it compared to the the movies that were coming before the Marvel movies before it. Um, oh yeah. They're much less stylized. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. the ugly Hulk is just an impossible bar for stylization, <laughs> but the, um, the other ones were just, I think the, the genius of the Marvel, the original Marvel films is that they are set more or less in our world and that they mm-hmm. take their time creating all the mm-hmm. super beings to the point where they have to kind of backfill it. And it's like, Oh yeah. Ant-Man was around in the sixties in Vietnam. It's like, oh, okay. But in Iron Man, I mean, you, you've got literally a post-9-11 America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's something that even, even the Nolan Batman films aren't willing to sort of play with. Like, military mm-hmm. stuff just doesn't factor into it. And then you you have the same arguments going on about surveillance and, and privacy mm-hmm. that uh, were going on in America during the Dark Knight. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously, Nolan wants to make them contemporary and, and real world metaphors but mm-hmm. at the same time you have a guy dressed as a bat with a private plane flying around yeah kidnapping people and like, yeah. extraordinarily renditioning them in the name of justice i love when the dark knight came out and it and it was playing into this thing of um 
the government's ability to spy on people using cell phones. And it was, it was, I remember it being like a conspiracy theory at the time. And so when it was in the movie, a lot of people were like rolling their eyes and stuff. And sure enough, like a couple years later, it came out that the American government was doing that. And then there were all these memes and jokes online about how Batman must have invented this for the American government. Yeah, it was just an easy shot. But yeah. also, I like he was talking about that at the time, that it was really something that more people should be aware of. So how else to do that but to sneak it into one of the biggest movies you're going to release this year? I love it. The other thing that Nolan doesn't get enough credit for is the ideas that he throws around, even though mm-hmm. more often than not, they get drowned out by the noise of the action sequences and not mm-hmm. even noise. That's like his, his action scenes are so. Or, or needless convolution, like a uh, tenant with, um, with climate change. Right. It's in there, isn't it? I forgot about that. Yeah. And it's, it's there. There's this, uh, this video. I'm, I'm going to keep throwing memes out there. Cause I like, I spend 90% of my day just watching funny videos, but uh, there's this video on YouTube where someone, uh, I think it's titled, dialogue in every Christopher Nolan film. And, (laughs) and it's basically uh, the protagonist talking to Michael Caine's character. And every time he thinks he's briefed him on what's going on, he's like, well, actually that's not what it really is. So he's like, Oh yeah. So there's these, this guy selling bullets. He's like, Oh, he was selling bullets. He's like, well, no, he thought he was selling bullets, but really the bullets hadn't been made yet. He's like, they weren't. He's like, or, will they be made? And then like, it's all these weird things and it, and it just keeps jumping. And I think that Nolan does this a lot, even in the dark night, he does it where there's always these fake outs and the good guys have fake outs and the bad guys have fake outs. And it's like, everyone's turning a, like pulling a fast one on each other. Um, but I will say that John Nolan does a much better job with it because he knows where the limit is of like how many times you can do a fake out and then move on. Whereas I find when Nolan's writing on his own, like in the case of Tenet, I find he does it too much and he needs someone to come in and and rein him in and and edit the script a little bit. So I would love to do more like fake outs in my films. I'm just, that's my, that's my concern is how do you make it good? (laughs) That's a, that's a tough call, right? I mean, you're right. Tenet has far too many reversals that just are obvious if you're paying the slightest bit of attention like you the guy with the backpack showing up and then the body and then mm-hmm. the fight with the guy in the mask and then once you understand what the concept is it's like well obviously that's gonna literally come back at him yeah it'll come back yeah all of these things are planted so they can recur but then you have the film doing a fake out itself in the dark night with mm-hmm. with rachel and mm-hmm. playing that without any mercy which I think mm-hmm. is the thing that lands so well in that in that mm-hmm. film that everybody like everybody kind of forgets that the relationship between mm-hmm. Bruce and Rachel was wobbly in mm-hmm. Batman Begins just because Katie Holmes' character didn't have enough space right and mm-hmm. then they introduce Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel who has just got a different energy one that mm-hmm. I think is a little more suited to Bale and his weird unpredictability as yeah, a romantic I, I lead. agree with that and they make I, us love her and then they kill her. Did you, were you surprised when she died? No, well, no. Um, just because I knew, I knew Harvey Dent couldn't. Right. Like I knew that that was where it had to go. And insomnia has reversals and like he'd already sort mm-hmm, of laid mm-hmm. the, laid the, the, uh, the runway for all of it. And now of course the joke is that 
Christopher Nolan kills the wives and girlfriends even before the movie starts. Yeah, like Maul and Inception. Exactly. It's um, where he was always going. But it it works in the movie. I mean, I, there were gasps in the press screening that I, when, when we saw it. I was shocked. Really? I was shocked for the same reason that you were certain. Because my thinking is he's going to save Rachel. Harvey Dent is going to blow up in the explosion, but he'll survive and half his face will be blown off. Right. That's my thinking, right? Like, this is obviously what they're setting up. And so when it doesn't go that way, I was like completely speechless watching it. And from that point on, and I also remember for the most part, the the marketing material for the film only showed stuff up to that point. They yep. showed very little after that point. And if they showed anything, it was frames, like frames long, not even a full second. And I, I know this because I sat there and I would download every single trailer that would come up for the movie and I would recut them and I would go through everything frame by frame, trying to dissect the movie and, and what does and doesn't happen or what might happen. And uh, so from that point on, I was like, oh my God, like I have no idea where this movie's going. They killed the the like main romantic interest and now they've introduced Two-Face halfway through the movie. Yeah, I think the other thing that had me going that in that direction was that based on Batman Begins, there's no way that Batman gets to be happy. There's no way Bruce yeah, Wayne gets yeah, to yeah, have a woman sure. who loves him. Uh, to the point where it kind of happens again in the first act of Dark Knight Rises, and it turns mm-hmm. out that that's a big betrayal that's been coming all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea, too, that he gets to live happily ever with Selina Kyle in, in France somewhere, mm-hmm. it's nice, but that's not who he is. Yeah. Um, it's it, that more than anything else felt like a cop out from Nolan just so he could bring in, you know, the big reveal of Robin, yeah. which again is one of those things that's right there for the entire movie. There's nowhere else that could go, but he still makes it feel like it lands with such power yeah. because they've hidden the name and we've just not heard it. Did you hear this, this, the fan theory before Dark Knight Rises came out and before they showed it in trailers about uh, how the third one was going to be a psychological thriller? I don't think I did hear that. So the idea was that the prestige and memento and inception were teeing up and cluing to the fact that the third Batman film was going to be a psychological thriller where it's all about this um, psych ward patient named Bruce Wayne. Oh, God. And how the first two movies were all in his head. Yeah, that's a whole season of Buffy right there. It's yeah, not necessary. Yeah. And, and you know, again, sometimes the fans can reach too far. Um, there was a theory. What was the last one? The one that I loved was when The Matrix Resurrections and John Wick 4 were apparently scheduled to release on the same day for oh, like a, yeah, a week. that's right. And yeah. someone was yelling that the, the end of The Matrix would be the revelation that John Wick is another layer of Matrix. And so we have to go into that. It's like, I kind of see where that could happen, especially with Fishburne showing up in the third one. But Mm. just don't, guys. Just, it's not necessary. I think it's funny. I I was like, this is obviously not what's going to happen. But I did Mm. think it was really funny. And I thought that it would be interesting. Just once I would love for a movie to come out in a series and be like, psych, none of it happened. Oh, just but like, like acknowledge it within the movie, like the first half of the fourth matrix. Yeah. I mean, I was actually, Halloween films do that. I haven't seen very many of them. I've seen the first one and I've seen the reboot. 
the, the first gritty, reboot. The gritty yeah. 2018 reboot. Yeah. No, that yeah, one yeah. that one is, I think, the fifth Halloween film to actively erase the continuity of the seasons mm. of the series. It just keeps happening. And now with the last three, they've ended it. But it'll it'll start up again. Yeah. These things make too much money not to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Same for Batman, really. I mean, you can't exhaust this concept. Although Warner has now said, like, James Gunn has pledged that they're not going to have Batman in everything and they're going to try to scale back a little bit. But how do you get away from one of the most successful characters in your stable? Yeah. I'm curious to see what they do with DC Comics because I was a huge fan of DC Comics. I read, and to be fair, I also read tons and tons and tons of Marvel comics. Sure. And the one thing killed my interest in Marvel and then another thing killed my interest in DC, like the comics. I have drifted away from comics a long, long time ago just because I'm not even sure. I think I just stopped for one reason or another mm. in the 90s and started reading trade paperbacks here and there. But it's been it's been simultaneously interesting and frustrating to try to catch up to some stuff and mm-hmm. realize just how far away from the original concepts that I grew up on were. And, and that's the concepts I grew up on were 60s and 70s comics. And so that's still like two different iterations away from what they were at the start, at the outset, I mean, you know, like in Detective Comics in 1937, Batman shot people. That was just his deal. Like we, we get away from that. And I remember people arguing um, with my review of Batman v Superman saying, you know, like, that I was upset that Batman was killing people. It's like, well, he used to. And it's like, yeah, but he doesn't anymore. You have to, like, it's like arguing that. It's not that, who he is. Yeah, it's not who he's been defined as for so long. And if you're going to change it, you have to show me why. Like narratively, yeah. there yeah. has to be a reason. Not just a line of exposition. Right. And it can't just be that it looks cool. Yeah. And the other problem that you introduced there is, well, if this Batman kills people, why is Joker still alive? Why is Deadshot still alive? Why like, why are all these bad guys still alive? You know what I mean? Also, how did he know that Kryptonite would work against Superman? Because they also hadn't established that. Oh, yeah. We don't even start on the... Yeah. Uh, I have I have a lot of issues with with what DC was has been doing. I really like James Gunn, so I'm 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 optimistic. Um, I would love at some point to do some kind of superhero film, whether it be Marvel or DC, because I I like I grew up on this stuff, right? Like I'm I'm genuinely passionate about it. Um, Star Wars is another one for me that that Star Wars is probably what made me realize that filmmaking was a career and it was my love of probably the dark knight movies that made me start to put that into practice in a very small scale but um but like writing fan films with friends or making my own posters or making my own trailers and things like that so hey, if if anyone from Marvel or DC or Star Wars is listening, like holler at me because <laughs> I'm uh, I'm very interested. Which is it's funny because obviously Toronto is nothing like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I was gonna usually the way out of the podcast is to ask what is it that you've borrowed or stolen or full on just photocopied into your own film and your own work. And you had said earlier before we started recording that the montage is in. Toronto mm-hmm. are, are similar to the Nolan approach. But yeah, um, how do you do that on a very, very small, very, very restrained sh- uh, film? Mm-hmm. So 
for me, montages, yeah, like like you just said, are a really great way to uh, to kind of pay homage to it and to learn from it. Um, something that Nolan does really well is he he has these through line, like a through line of voiceover over top of montages, and that's something that he obviously got from Terrence Malick, and he's talked about this at length that that he's very much influenced by the way that Malick makes his films and and specifically talks about his montages, so. You could also make the argument that I got this from Malik because I do also love <laughs> Malik and I love um, Tree of Life and Dead Run Line and both of those films do this quite a bit. But uh, there's a number of montages in Tehranzo and a lot of them kind of harken back to that. There's one in particular in the third act of the film where there's one character who's uh, writing and reciting poetry over a montage. And the way that that is like the momentum is built is influenced um and inspired by a lot of nolan's montages and also this idea of having a movie end by finishing a story and teeing up another one is mm. also something that nolan does all the time like we talked about and something that i like to do um in in all my films and uh there was a version of the film where it ends and everything gets tied up very nicely in a bow and I immediately went back over it. I was like, no, 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 this doesn't work. It's not realistic. It, like it, and it, and it leaves you just the movie ends. You're like, all right, that's the movie, you know. Whereas this way, even though it's it's a rom com and it's supposed to be um, very accessible to as many people as possible, um, I think that it ending it the way that I did still tees up more to come, which I again is is taken from Nolan. And I think also taking a genre that is very accessible in my case, a rom-com or in Nolan's case, a superhero film and embedding themes and character arcs that are influenced by, uh, by histories with a little more depth, I think is, is something that I tried to do that, that Nolan obviously does, you know, he applies uh, literary structures and themes, especially into his his films, um, especially in the Dark Knight movie, where it is a very accessible genre as a superhero film. And I tried to do the same thing, um, making commentary on Iranians in the diaspora. Uh, and, and I guess you could also just argue immigrants in general um, and, and talking about these thematic elements that are apparent in a lot of our lives. Um, I don't try to show the film as very, you know, black and white. I, uh, or the, the themes in the film are, are not very black and white. You have characters who kind of skirt different lines. And again, it's not like Batman who's like beating people and, like to a pulp, but then also pretending to be a superhero. But like you still have characters who on the one hand say that they are very pro Iran, but then on the other hand, they're, they, give very damning comments of Iranians who are assimilated. And is that the right thing to do? I don't know. Um, but different characters have different opinions of these things. And I think that the idea is that it inspires conversation. Yeah. It's like the central conflict of your film, really. I mean, beyond the romantic comedy stuff, there is that, that's the conversation that goes through it from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the film is definitely a character piece before it is a rom-com, but it's wrapped up in a rom-com. And I think that The Dark Knight is similar in that regard, where it's this character piece. It's a character piece for 
Bruce Wayne and for Harvey Dent. And it's wrapped up in a superhero drama. And I think that it's brilliant because it, it, it takes these really deep stories and these very deep characters and it presents them to a massive audience, right? Like thinking again about me being this 16 year old boy in, uh, in the Southwestern Ontario who had never been, been interested in any kind of deep themes or, or um, interesting character structures and being spoon fed this in a mainstream medium it's what I tried to do with Tehranto. I, I consciously picked the romantic comedy as a frame, as a um, as a vessel to propose, um, hopefully, deeper concepts and deeper characters. My thanks to Farhan Maradi, whose charming romantic comedy Tehranto opens this Friday, November twenty fifth, at the Cineplex Young Dundas and Cineplex Empress Walk Theatres in Toronto. It'll be available on VOD across Canada December sixth. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Ferran on Twitter at Ferran Maradi, all one word, and you can find The Dark Knight on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment and streaming on Crave in Canada and HBO Max in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.